Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. This week on Useful to God, Dr. James Spencer and I will be going back to the beginning in search of those key pieces that we may have glossed over between Sunday school and our present situations. James, as we do, do we get a clue of how we can be useful to God? Yeah, I think we do. I mean, the creation narrative and um, and the book of Genesis overall uh, are some of my favorite passages. I, I'm an Old Testament guy. Um, and uh, and so Genesis has been a real locus for me. And so as we read through Genesis 1, 26 through 27, um, where we see God create mankind in his own image, what we what we really need to understand there is that this image of God is to reflect God in the world. It's uh, the establishment of humankind sort of co-regency or vice-regency uh, is probably the better way to put it with God. In other words, um, if God is the president, we are the vice president. Um, but we have a little bit more power than our vice president here in the United States. Um, we are going to have delegated authority uh, over all of creation. And our real job is just to reflect God's character in that creation so as to bring about um additional order within the world. You know, God creates this perfectly harmonious world, but there's still a sense in which, you know, as we go out and subdue the earth and and fill it and multiply, that there's this sense that we are going to extend God's glory beyond the garden and that um, we are to cover the whole earth with God's glory as we multiply and fill it and subdue it. And that was the role of God's image. It's actually part of the reason that we um, we see later on that uh, Israel isn't to have graven idols um, that would stand in as reflections of God to humanity, because humanity is to be that reflection of God. Now, to be fair, God starts off with an empty page. I like that analogy as a writer, and then uh, begins <laughs> to create this new heaven and earth. In the creation story, should our approach to Genesis 101, see what I did there, uh, is, uh, <laughs> is to not lean too heavily on our own understanding of what seven days is? Well, I think this is a really important point because a lot of times when I teach the book of Genesis or when I've taught the book of Genesis in the past, uh, most of the students want to just hop into the creation evolution debate. And the creation evolution debate is important. It's a it's a good topic to cover. But I think what often gets lost as we get into some of the details of the Genesis narrative is the theology of the Genesis narrative. And so um, when I look at the Genesis narrative, I tend to see seven 24 hour days. Um, now, I don't necessarily connect that to the creation, the evolution debate. What I mean by that is just this. Um. I don't believe that these initial narratives were originally intended to tell us anything about the age of the earth. And so they're crafted in order to display God and to explain a lot of what's going on in ancient Israel. This is a, a, uh, a mythic text, and that word myth can often be misconstrued as fictional. 
but it's not actually necessarily fictional. And in this case, it's certainly not fictional. What it is, is it is a representation, almost a symbolic um, provision where Israel, through Moses, is trying to convey the truth of who God is and the truth of creation by creating this this narrative that shows how the world was created. And so what we see in this first creation narrative is not only that the world was created in seven days, but we also now see the seven days come back in something like, you know, Exodus 20, where um, Moses is going to give the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, and they are to rest on the seventh day following the pattern of creation. It's a specific reference back. And so what we're probably seeing here in this seven day period is just uh, Israel's understanding of the way the world worked as a reflection of who God is and who they're supposed to be. And so a lot of this conveys theology as opposed to conveying time. Now, those time elements can be there. We can we can infer those from the text. But I think one of the things that I've tried to do as I teach the book is to get students to recognize that that the as important as the creation evolution debate may be, what's really, really important for us not to miss is who is God, who are we, and how does who God is change the way that we are supposed to be in the world? In other words, there are theological points here that we shouldn't neglect in order to prove our case for a young earth or an old earth or evolution or creation or what have you. Those things are very secondary issues within the book of Genesis. And we need to not miss the point that God is wise, benevolent, and sovereign. And that comes out clearly in these creation narratives and that we are made in his image and are to reflect God's sovereignty, wisdom, and benevolence as we rule over the rest of the earth. Now, um, I'm going to ask you to humor me for a little bit. There are tags <laughs> on everything we buy in a store that tell the consumer where the thing came from. This is a cause at times of nationalism. When we read Made in the USA, while there is uh, nothing wrong with this, the who is often reduced to a number of quality assurance and accountability reasons. What the object is, is evident. Expiration dates will tell you when on some products, the why can probably be figured out on the price tag. And the how is often an issue of secret sauce or non-disclosure agreements. We are not born with a tag that says made by God in the image of the creator to be creative and used by God. And yet, if we began to look at our spouses, our kids, and our neighbors, and ourselves in that way, what would the results uh, be in, uh, in our quality of life? Well, there's no doubt that um, understanding who we are in relation to God, and I, I think this is a really important uh, point to make, the creation narrative doesn't just tell us who God is. It tells us who we are in relation to him. And so well, I would say it like this. Um, while, you know, you're right, I think it doesn't really matter that, you know, in, in the big scheme of things, we can tell that, you know, what an object is without it saying it's made in America, or, you know, we can, we can generally tell if a uh, milk's expired just by sniffing it, we don't really need an ex expiration date. Um, and so there are some things in life that become more and more evident as we just sort of infer from what's going on. But, uh, as we think about 
what it means to sort of know ourselves. We can't really know ourselves if that knowledge isn't situated in relationship to God. And so there's a very real way in which when we do not understand who God is, we will never understand who we are. If we are built, if we are made to reflect the image of God, and yet we don't know who God is or we deny God, we will never really fulfill our purpose. We'll never really do what we're intended to do. And so there has to be this linkage. We have to deeply understand who God is, and we have to deeply understand what he's made us to do. And as we understand that linkage, then we would enhance, um, as you say, like our quality of life. And I think the way I would sort of phrase that is we would begin to actually live. We would be more authentically human uh, in myriad ways than we are if we don't understand who we are in relation to God. But I think that has to be in there, especially in our day and age now where, um, you know, identities seem to be more and more up for grabs. Our identity is defined in relation to God. And these fractured identities that we often see, um, you know, sort of out in our society today are, I think, a consequence of a delinkage of who God is and who we are. There's no way that we are going to understand ourselves if we do not have a relationship with God, if we do not understand that identity in relation to him. And so, as I said, I think the creation narrative really reflects God's sovereignty. He speaks the world into existence. There's no resistance there. Um, everything just sort of falls into line. And so that speaks to his sovereignty or his authority over all things. He's wise in that the world becomes ordered in a manner that it all fits together and works together well. And he's benevolent. Um, God does all of this for the good of his creatures. In other words, you can envision a moment where God would have designed the perfect torture chamber for humanity. And that's not particularly benevolent, but it could be construed as wise. And so he's benevolent because he doesn't create a torture chamber. He creates this beautiful, wonderful paradise for us to live in. And so God is sovereign, wise, and benevolent. But if we don't understand that, then there's no real reason for us to be sovereign in a way that is delegated by God and thus demonstrates wisdom as defined by God and benevolent as God's empowerment would allow. And so we have to find our own ways of dominating the world, of shaping reality, of figuring out how to navigate a broken and fallen world, and ultimately of um, deciding whether or not we want to be kind to others. And so once we begin to define who we are in relation to God, all of that gets a little easier. And, you know, ultimately, besides being easier, it just gets right. It, it is more in touch with reality to be in relationship with God than not. James, in your book, Christian Resistance, you unwrap the concept of imitation and how by human nature, we psychologically are prone to compete through comparisons. We have a three-tier view of what is good or bad, better or worse, and, and best and worst. <laughs> we measure our kids or our spouse and our neighbors. We, we measure our kids or our spouse and our neighbors on who they should be, on who they should be more like, and the imitation is based more on image and perception than the image of our Creator. 
How can we be imitators of the triune God in creativity, in serving and usefulness to God and people? Yeah, this was a this is a theory that was put forth by a gentleman named Rene Girard. And what he posited was that um, humans imitate each other. And through the imitation of each other, we then uh, develop relationships with objects of desire. And so his argument was that um, when humans often when humans compete over a specific object of desire, the object isn't really the problem. The problem is that one human is imitating another. And so as we look at that and we think about this idea of the image of God, what we're really doing when we imitate someone else is that we are trying to reflect them, channel who they are through us. We're trying to be their mirror, in other words. And so as if they desire something, then we want to desire that thing. And what, what Gerard postulated was that as we adopt the desires of others, it ultimately creates conflict. Because if we both want what the other desires, we both desire the same thing, inevitably we're going to be in competition for that thing. And so uh, if, if we can get our heads around really taking a step back and imitating God, not trying to keep up with the Joneses, not going out onto social media and scrolling through everybody else's profile and looking at how wonderful people's life is presented, right? Which is is comical in and of itself. Um but if we can really get our heads around I, imitating Christ and allowing his desires to be our desires, all of a sudden we put ourselves in the position to do things like loving our enemies. We, we have it in ourselves to be more generous, not to view wealth as, as some sort of sign of status, but as an opportunity, a gift from God to be generous with others. It's those sort of of logical moves, we could call them, or theological moves, maybe, that we need to be making if we're going to be the image of God as opposed to being the image of other humans. And I'll give you a little example of this. I mean, um, we uh, when we when we go out on into sort of the digital ether and we're watching all the different media channels that we could possibly watch, um, we're often not aware of what the reality behind what we're presented with actually is. So my wife and I were on a trip and uh, we accidentally ran across the filming of a reality TV show. And so we were in the airport and uh, evidently the scene that they were trying to tape was one of the um, people in the reality show coming over and greeting her friends in the airport. They did three takes of one of the reality show people walking over and being excited to greet her friends. Three takes of that on a reality TV show. We'll only ever see one on the television. It'll get edited and re-edited. And so it, it will show up as just one take of her being really excited to see her friends. But as we watched them taping this, all the went through my mind was that took three takes. And I think a lot of what we see out in the world right now is that it has that sort of facade to it. It's not that the people's lives on Instagram are that much better than ours. We're just getting a really great snapshot of, you know, a great moment within their lives that maybe the rest of the day was horrible. And so if we constantly try to imitate these little bits and pieces that we're getting of other people's lives and allow our desires to be shaped just by what we're presented, we're going to be in trouble. 
we need to focus in on who Christ is, really delve into his life, understand what he desires, and allow ourselves the opportunity to be God's image by imitating Christ. Yeah, the uh, the, the key word and the ironic word is reality, isn't it? <laughs> right, right. Different definition than I usually have. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Is what he is saying, is that the way we live should be more of our testimony that would want people to want that kind of life for themselves and of others? I think so. Yeah. I, you know, I think that what Paul is confident in writing here to the Corinthians is just that Paul has um so has become so practiced at imitating Christ that he feels like he is a good model for others to imitate. And I mean, I think that's a really bold statement, but I, I think um, what he's really wanting them to look at is, look, don't just follow me because I'm Paul, right? Um, me being Paul is of no consequence. You don't want to be Paulites, right? Um, you don't, you don't want to follow Paul. In fact, he says in a different portion of this letter, you know, um, the, the Corinthians were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And Paul's point is, I, I wasn't aware that I was crucified for you. I wasn't aware that you were baptized into my name. Like we all follow one Christ. So don't worry about Paul or Apollos or Cephas, follow Jesus. And I think he's doing something very similar here. He's downplaying himself in an odd way. He's saying that you shouldn't want to be like Paul. You should want to be like Christ. And so if you're going to bother imitating me, do it because I also imitate Jesus. That's what I think he's saying. And so for us, what we want to be able to do is say, listen, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, don't be more like James. Don't be more like Richard. Be more like Jesus. And to the extent that you can see that in us, we are people that you could potentially imitate. But don't try to be James. Don't try to be Richard. Be yourself imitating Christ. Do your own imitation of him. Yeah. And uh, and, and as Paul often said, too, uh, that he was the chief sinner. <laughs> I, I That's am, right. I am a sinner uh, like you. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I am I am the chief of, of all sinners, you know. And so uh, he was... Uh, he may be may have uh, come to the reality of being an imitator of of Christ, but he was his own person uh, in that way. So that's a, that is a great point. Yeah, and I think ultimately, you know, it's it, it's telling the way that he says it. Um, you know, he doesn't want people just to be Paul, right? Don't join my denomination. Don't don't adopt my culture. Don't be a follower of Paul, right? It's always be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Everything points back to Christ. And so that's what Paul's really trying to do here. That testimony that he's providing is one that he really believes needs to be there in the lives of all people. And so if they follow him, they are going to end up being the chief of all sinners. They're going to be having the, the same problems and faults and challenges that Paul has. But if we all follow Christ, if we all imitate him, if we look to each other to emulate different aspects of who Christ is, we'll be far better off because it won't yield the sort of tensions that can often come if we're just trying to imitate one another. And we end up sort of competing with one another to be better. Uh, what it's going to end up as is harmony. Because when we imitate Christ, what we realize is that 
we also imitate this idea. Uh, uh, we also get this idea that he can give more abundantly than we can ever ask or think. And so there's no reason to compete. There's, there's resources aplenty for everyone to imitate Jesus. James, as we uh, come to Holy Week, Jesus presents a number of objective lessons in that walk into Jerusalem to the walk to Calgary and the cross. I I think of Palm Sunday, the donkey and the upper room. I think of washing the feet of his disciples, the Garden of Gethsemane, and being imitators of God, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit. How then do we respond? The culture has taken the true meaning of our creativity or the true meaning of creativity and have made it into something it's not. How do we imitate the discipline of Jesus in God's mission? How do we walk through the Samarias of our culture with an eye on Jerusalem? Well, you know, the way I usually phrase this is it's about constraint. Um, and and we kind of talked about this at the beginning of the, of the program here, um, when we talked about, you know, not really being able to understand ourselves if we didn't also understand God. In other words, we are who we are in relation to God. And I think as we think about creativity, as we think about expression, as we think about, um, you know, sort of conveying something unique to the world. Um, those things, often what we want to do is we want to do those things in a way that is separated from God. We want to be creative, but we don't want our creative creativity constrained by any sort of um, necessity of honoring God with our creativity. We just want to do our own thing. In other words, we don't really want to reflect God in our creativity. What we want to do is be creative. And there's a difference. When we reflect God in our creativity, We are going to be constrained by who God is. Now, that's not much of a constraint, but it does mean that there are certain things we won't be able to do with our creativity. It holds us back in a certain way, gives us a discipline, as you noted, like that discipline um, that Jesus has to fulfill God's mission. It gives us that discipline because if it doesn't glorify God, we shouldn't be doing it. And so I think that God gives us the possibility and and really the potential to be creative and expressive and 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 interesting and to explore and uh, and to think and to be intellectually creative uh, within a, a within our cultures but ultimately those are all constrained by whether or not what we create or what we reflect is glorifying to God and so we have to be careful with that so I think you know as we walk through sort of the Samarias of our culture, and we're looking toward Jerusalem, what we're always trying to do is we're always trying to make sure that the expressions of our creativity, um, the way that we reflect God as his image is appropriate and that um, it truly is reflecting God, that it's not reflecting who I want to be, who I choose to be, who I desire to present to the world, but that it's presenting God to the world. That is our mission. That's our, that's our reality. And so we've got to keep him central to everything that we're doing and develop those disciplines that will allow us to, A, I think, know him more deeply so that as we engage in creative endeavors, we are glorifying him. But it requires a a careful sort of discipline and intimacy with the Lord to really understand when you're prepared to do that and when you're not. And then the, the commitment to say, when I'm not ready, I'm not doing it. This week, Jesus teaches his disciples and us 
about completing a mission that started at the beginning in Genesis. How can we be imitators of Christ in mind and in service to God and to each other? Well, I found lately, and I, I we've been you know working on some different classes for um, useful God ministries. But one of the things that I found is that it, just in studying the Gospels, watching Jesus's interactions um, that are written there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, I have come to a greater appreciation for what it might mean to imitate Jesus. Jesus is actually a pretty compelling guy. And uh, just the way that he interacts with other people, the way that he asks questions, the way that he speaks, um, the things that he's passionate about, um, they do guide us in a way that um, many of the other you know, New Testament books probably do too. But there is something compelling about the presentation of Christ in the Gospels that I think we need to grapple with. And so digging into those Gospel accounts, I think, is a great place to, to start on all of this. But ultimately, I think the advice that I would give to people is just this. Um, you know, I was I did formal theological education as a student for 12 years, and then I was in higher ed for 11 years. And, uh, you know, I taught most of that time uh, as well as was serving as an administrator. And what I would say is um, all of the knowledge that I gained during that time was fantastic. I loved it. I'm an intellectual guy. I, I like to learn things. But. The parts that really mean meant something to me across that time were the parts that I put into practice. And so we've got to learn. I don't think the book of James tells us to be not just hearers of God's word, but doers of God's word um, as sort of a flippant or, a, you know, moral uh, piece of advice. I think that's really how we begin to grow in our imitation of Jesus. We actually start doing things, trusting him um, doing what his word says. And that can happen in little ways. I've not always done the grand gestures when it comes to obedience, but I've really tried to be obedient in small things and watch how God meets me in those small things. So I think that's a really crucial part is that we don't always need to learn more. Uh, I know that's sort of a default answer. And as an intellectual, I love to say it. So, you know, um, we don't just have to learn more. But I would say that what we learn and what we already know, we need to begin to put into practice because as we put into practice, we will become to know God in greater depths because I think he meets us in our obedience. We have to depend on him to be obedient. And so as we're obedient, we are we are truly choosing to walk with God. Next week on Useful to God, James Spencer and I will discuss the next steps of usefulness. We will talk about how Jesus restores a broken Simon Peter to be used as a rock in building the church. And we will talk about the next steps in the lives of the disciples as they wait for the wind of the Holy Spirit, as they become apostles. They are no longer slaves, and neither are we. Jesus calls us friends who can be useful to God.